So, Romans chapter 7. There's a cheer from the crowd. <laughs> we made it that far. Okay. So, if you have a Bible with you, go to Romans chapter 7. If you're new to New Hope, we've been working through this for 39 weeks now. And um, last week, we really slowed it down. We just did one word, the word eternity. I probably won't do that again in Romans, just do one word, but we'll see. We'll see what's coming. Um, Romans chapter 7 this morning, though, is uh, um, kind of, um, let's see, how do I call this? We're going to do verses 1 through 6, and the first part of it is going to feel like swimming through peanut butter, okay? It's real thick. It is. It's thick, and and it's gooey, and it's going to make you feel like, oh, this is heavy stuff, but... Hang on, because verse 6 is really full of application to you, so I I really want to take you there. Um, Not too many people that I've known have ever used verses out of Romans chapter 7 for their life verse, okay? And and it's just because um, there's not stuff necessarily that rolls off the tongue in chapter 7, but there's a real strong reason why Paul wrote what he did and why God moved him to write this. So I need to especially bear down with you on Romans chapter 7, verse 6. And maybe by the time you leave today, you're going to say, yeah, that's my life verse. I got that one. You'll understand why I'm talking about that. Let me pray with you first, and then we'll step into the passage. Father, thank you for those who have gathered this morning, those who are watching on, online right now. And um, we're just feeling the sense of... Um, awe, having not only worshiped you, but the privilege of opening up your word. I pray that you would be with us through the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us right now. So we surrender ourselves and ask that you would use your word to speak into our life and use it for that purpose, that we might know you better and that we might respond better to the way that you call us and that we might know ourselves better. Father, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you study the Bible, especially as you go through the New Testament, you find the, that the law uh, of God is held to a really, really high view. It's, it's honored. And in many places in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you find the law called things like his statutes or his ordinances or his commands. We, we tend to think of his commands like the Ten Commandments. When you come across uh, references to the law, it's always held to a place of very, very high regard. No one holds it to a higher place than Jesus himself. <clears throat> he puts it to the ultimate position. Let me give you an example of that in Matthew 5. We'll get to Romans in just a minute. Matthew 5, 15, 5 17 says this, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, you can go on to read the rest yourself if you want, but you'll find an exact match for that in the Old Testament because Scripture speaks to Scripture. Bible verses support other Bible verses. So when you go to the Old Testament, you find someone like King Solomon, considered the wisest man on all the planet other than Jesus, says this about the law, and you find it in Ecclesiastes 12.13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments. So you got the wisest guy on planet Earth making a very concise statement saying, yeah, when all's said and done, keep God in the right perspective, keep His commandments. When you come to the first century and Jesus is walking on the planet, you find that individuals have held the law to such a high standard and have revered it so much that they actually have become guilty 
of thinking it is the mechanism for salvation, holding it to such a high regard that they put more faith in the law than they do in the God who gave them the law. Eventually, their devotion to the law is so pompous that they begin bragging about their ability to keep the law. None is a better example of that than Paul himself. When he's a believer in Jesus, he looks back on his former life and says, yeah, I used to keep the law that way too. Let me show you on the screen. It's from Philippians 3, 4. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. See, Paul's a prime example of an individual who says, yeah, I used to live by that standard. To the point where I held it to such a degree, I thought that that would earn me a favor with God. And many individuals think that keeping rules is the way to get God's favor. If I just do this and this and this, maybe God will let me in one day. That's the mindset in the first century when Jesus comes. And then you find Paul saying, yep, that's exactly the way I used to think. But then you have this radical transformation that takes place. And you come to the book of Romans and you spend weeks and weeks and weeks in it, and you get to chapter 6, and you find Paul writing about this evidence of the dramatic change in his life. Now watch the contrast when I put verse 14 from chapter 6 back on the screen for you. I know we were in it a few weeks ago, but just look at the evidence of change in his life. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law. How can a guy who's been under law his whole life now say you're not under law? You're under grace. What's going on here? How do you explain that? He was convinced it's all about a set of rules. Well, get your amens ready because like you this morning, like a myriad of others throughout the ages, Paul came to the conclusion where he understood there is only one way to eternity with God and that is through Jesus Christ. Good job, you guys. See, Saturday night, I had to coach them on that one. Okay, pay attention if you're online. When you come to New Hope, do it that way, all right? He, he understood exactly what it is. It's not rules. It's grace. It's not a system of keeping the do's and don'ts. The, yeah, God calls us to that, but that isn't what gets you eternal life. So let me bear down on chapter 6, verse 14, before we go to 7 for just a minute. When you see that verse on the screen, Paul spent the last half of chapter 6 explaining the first sentence, for sin shall not be master over you, and he used the remainder of chapter 6 to explain that statement. Now, when you come this morning into chapter 7, and especially when you hit verse 1, he uses chapter 7 to explain the last half of verse 14. You're not mastered by sin. You're not under the law. You're under grace. So chapter 7 is all about grace. It's all about how you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and you are not under the law, but you're under grace. Now, doesn't that excite you to get into the passage? Even though it might feel like swimming through peanut butter, I wanted you to understand where this is going. So that helps us understand why on the heels of talking about eternity in verse 23, he makes what seems like a hard shift. Go with me to verse 1 of chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren... 
For I'm speaking of those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, last week, I told you, we spent the whole week, the weekend, just talking about eternity. And Paul emphasized it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, it's eternity. Why talk about eternity and then shift to talking about the law? It's, it's not a disconnected thought. Paul is really skillful. And he's very discerning of what people think, especially those who are reading this in the first century who have thought, I can earn my way. It's about a system of rules. Paul says, it's not about a system of rules. It's about grace. So he starts out by saying, don't you know? Don't you know, those of you who know God's word? See, his primary point is kind of obvious here. Any law whether it's Greek law or Roman law or American law, it only has jurisdiction over you as long as you're alive. If a criminal dies, they're not subject to prosecution, no matter how wicked they are. Check this. Lee Harvey Oswald kills John F. Kennedy, but he never comes to trial because he's killed before he can be put on trial for killing the President of the United States. So Lee Harvey Oswald, well, according to Matt Hall, allegedly kills John F. Kennedy. (laughs) Matt caught me before the service and said, you got to correct that, allegedly. All right, we good, Matt, all right, okay. So Lee Harvey Oswald kills John Kennedy, never comes to trial. Adolf Hitler kills six million Jews, never comes to trial. Why? Because he dies before he can be put on trial. The law only has jurisdiction over someone As long as they're alive, the law is only binding on the living. Where is Paul going with this? Well, to amplify it, he gets really practical, and he begins talking about marriage. Go with me to verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now hear this, Romans is not teaching on divorce here. It's not teaching that divorce is unjustified. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about biblical divorce. He's simply illustrating a point. He's saying no law has jurisdiction over a dead person. So what he's doing is calling attention to the fact that laws of marriage, for instance, are only binding when both people are alive. So being joined together while a spouse is still alive, he says those people become an offender of the law. But if they're adjoined after a spouse dies, it's perfectly acceptable. Why? Because the widow or the widower is free from the marriage law that bound them. He's just using this as an example. Go with me to verse 4 and you'll see why. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit from God. And the last part of that sentence is really, really huge. It's where we're going with this this morning. So the word therefore means he's switching. He's going over to application now. He wants to apply this directly to our lives. At this point, Paul begins teaching. Just as a woman whose husband has died is free to marry again, believers, since they've died to the law, are free to belong to Jesus because death renders the law inoperative. So you, new hope, 
believers in Jesus Christ this morning, those of you who identify him as your savior, you're a Christ follower, you were, according to what we see in verse 4, made to die to the law. And when he says made, he's not talking about created, as in you were created to die to the law, meaning God did something. God caused you to die to the law. When did that happen? You were made to die to the law by an action of God when you responded by faith to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because the law can only condemn, right? The law can only condemn. It can't redeem. It has no power to redeem. All it can do is bring condemnation. So Romans declares that if you've got faith in Jesus, you are free from the penalty of God's laws. Jesus has freed you. How did that happen? Let me take you back into verse 4. I'll just put one sentence up on the screen for you. Through the body of Christ, right? Jesus paid the penalty on our behalf. Jesus paid the price. So just as a woman is released from a relationship to a man in death, Paul's example is that helps us to understand how believers are freed from a relationship to a set of rules, things that held them in check made them think, I've got to earn my way to God. No, Jesus died for you, and with his death, we died with him on Calvary. And so we're free to be joined to another one. Who's the one we're joined to? Jesus. He says in verse 4, the one who was raised from the dead. So check this. In salvation, in your salvation this morning, if you are in Jesus Christ, your salvation brings a complete change of relationship. Believers are now free, guys don't like this statement, but hear it anyways, believers are now free to be married to Jesus. Women are good with that, right? Guys are like, ooh, I'm not so sure I like that, right? It's kind of weird, I'm a guy. Believers are free to be married to Jesus, if you're going to use Paul's analogy and carry it over. We're free to be joined to him. So this salvation brings a complete change of relationship. Ephesians gives us a beautiful image of this. I think women especially love Ephesians when it begins talking about the marriage relationship. Let me show you Paul's example. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. See, the whole picture is of the bride and the bridegroom. Released from one, free to be married to the other. The complete imagery here is found in not only in Ephesians, but what Paul's writing about in Romans. So you've been in Romans 39 weeks now. The underlying emphasis of the book of Romans is all about what we're studying this morning. Salvation in Jesus produces a total transformation. Everything changes. A complete change of relationship. No longer bound to the old. Free to follow the new. So the purpose of the death, the purpose of Jesus' death and our dying with him spiritually is that we might belong to another, the one who was raised from the dead. Through Jesus' death, God did something amazing for you. I know you saw it last week. We talked about this, but I just need to remind you about it again. Look with me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf 
that we might become the, the what, church? The righteousness. Total transformation. Complete change of identity. Want to step it up a notch? The last part of verse 4, bring it up a notch. The purpose in being joined to Jesus is that we might bear fruit, that there might be some evidence in our life. Look up me on the screen at Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, meaning God's already got things for you to do. You may just not have discovered them yet. It absolutely stands to reason. If there's been a complete change of relationship, well, that's going to result in a transformed life. And God says that transformed life is going to bear fruit. A much more concise way of saying all that I just said is said by Charles Hodge. Um, he's an old dead theologian. He lived back in the early 1800s. And I wanted you to see his quote. We are delivered from the law that we might be united to Christ. And we are united to Christ that we may bring forth fruit unto God. Pretty concise, right? And yes, there was a time when Princeton was known as Princeton Theological Seminary. You wouldn't necessarily identify it that way anymore. But Charles Hodge is a great theologian. He condensed it right down. Yeah, absolutely. We're delivered from the law, no longer under a set of rules, that we could be united to Jesus. And we're united to Jesus that we can bring forth fruit. So what does that look like in your life? And this is where it gets really practical. We're going right on the street. Godly fruit evidences itself in your life, and you can measure it. You can identify it. People around you can identify it in you. So there's a couple of them that are found in your notes this morning, but let me put them on the screen for you. What does that look like? Well, in two ways, very specific, in your attitude and in your actions. So let's look first at the attitude because Scripture talks about how we can reveal that. What does it look like internally? Well, internally, God says, if you've got the fruit of the Spirit, you're producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So my question is, how are you doing with that? I have to ask myself that same question. How am I doing with that? In the last couple of weeks, both of my daughters, independently at, at different times, said to me, Dad, you're not as patient as you used to be. And I'm like checking myself on that right now because I'm thinking, huh, is that really true of me? Am I not evidencing patience like I used to? Maybe this is a product of getting older. So if you're older than me, can you tell me, do you get impatient as you get older? You don't have to raise your hand. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Do we become, or, or is God's standard such that, hey, you better be evidencing this in your life? So if you want to check yourself on this, if you're in a relationship with somebody, just ask them. They'll tell you. Husbands, turn to your wives and say, do I have self-control? No, you don't have to do that right now, right? right? But your spouse will tell you, right? If you want to be really vulnerable, just ask somebody who knows you very well. Do you see these things in my life? Is there goodness? Is, is there faithfulness? Is there evidence of that? Because it should be leaking out of us. So those are internal things. Those are just examples. There's others in Scripture. Let me give you another one of the outward, the external actions. The fruit of the Spirit's revealed in this Outward visibility, we're told in Hebrews 13, 15, the fruit of the lips that give thanks. How are you doing with that? You just did it in the service, right? It's safe in church. We can stand up and sing together and we give thanks to God for who he is. But how are you doing outside the church? And I'm talking about more than just at mealtime. 
more than just maybe a restaurant you might go to this week? Is there a way that you start your day out with this attitude of gratitude of, God, thank you for this day? I don't know what you're going to produce out of it, and this is the way I try and start my day. How are you going to use this day, Father? My heart is thankful towards you for giving me this day. I don't know what you're going to produce out of it, but it's yours. Use it for your purposes. Attitude of gratitude. Or here's another one. It comes from Titus 2.14. It's talking about Jesus because obviously he gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What does that look like in my life? Well, I've fallen into this position where I've had to come to the Father because I think God knows me. I know God knows me better than even my wife. And he can tell me, am I zealous for good deeds? God, what does that look like in my life? See, pastors are not exempt from this. It doesn't matter that you might serve full-time in a church. God, am I advancing the kingdom in the way that you want me to do that? How are you, New Hope, doing with this? I don't want to spend a lot of time with verse 5 because we're going to come back to it next week, but let's just go there for just a second. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 7, for while we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. I think if you're looking at that, you're thinking, what? How could God's law bring out sinful passions in me? Well, that's why I want to come back to it next week. How in the world can God's law do that? Well, understand what he's doing. He's putting a converse standard up there. See, he's talking about things that characterize the lives of non-believers. Bearing fruit that produced death. Paul's looking back on who we were. He's the master at this. This is who you were. This is who you are now. Go with me to verse 6. But now, watch the contrast. We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The letter meaning the law. This is a transitional phrase, right, in verse 6. But now, something's changed in you. Something is radically different. You're no longer that. You're no longer bearing fruit for death. You're bearing fruit for God. Once again, reminding us, this is who you were. This is who you are. Remember Paul's point? The law has no jurisdiction over a person only as long as they live. Because we died to Jesus when he died on Calvary, we were released from the penalties of God's law. God released us from what Scripture calls the curse of the law. Look with me on the screen. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. You see why I want to come back to this next week? Verse 5, put in conjunction with Galatians 3.13. How can God's law be a curse how can it produce sinful passions within me? I want to understand that. Well, we will next week. But catch this. You and I, this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have been released from our old bondage, having died to that, that very thing we are formerly bound to. And Paul's point is this. A person who's been saved, a person who's been released, that person will do and must do things that are good, things that are right, things that are in keeping with producing fruit. Earlier this week, my mind immediately went to a story where Jesus was interacting with the really, really religious people 
who were walking up to him. He saw them coming from a distance. And in the Bible, they're called Pharisees and scribes. Jesus sees them, and he yells out across the crowd from a distance, you brood of vipers, right? How's that for an opening line for a greeting, right? You <laughs> barrel of snakes, right? So they're walking up to have a conversation with him, and he just stops them right in their tracks. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. Because they're wearing the robes of righteousness. They're wearing the title of Pharisee and scribe. They look religious, but God calls them out and says, you guys aren't producing anything. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You and I have been released Because of our repentance, we have been released from the old bondage. And Paul says, his point is, therefore you are able to and you will do what is right. Formerly in bondage to sin, the old master, now free to serve our new master. To serve in the spirit is to serve in the resurrected life. Maybe you've heard people use that phrase in church. You might be really new to church, and maybe you've heard people say, the resurrected life, the power of the resurrected life, what is that? It's the very thing Jesus just described, producing fruit, living in that righteousness to such a degree that people can see it within you. So let me just bear down, since we're just about done here, with verse 6, let me just bear down and put a really concise phrase on the screen for you, the way that it's stated here. We have been released from the law so that we serve in the newness of spirit. Released to serve. You getting this? Released to serve. And many people are thinking, wait, I thought I was saved so I could go to eternity. Well, you are. And so many American Christians, Western world Christians are good with the thought of, well, I got my ticket punched. I believe in Jesus. I'm destined for eternity. That is absolutely true. If you're a believer in Jesus and and you're following him, true. But God didn't just save you for eternity. He saved you for time on planet Earth. Otherwise, he'd take you away, right? There's a purpose in you being here. God's got a purpose in releasing you so that you can serve. So we have been released from the, the law, the thing that held us so that we would serve in the newness of the Spirit. So I want you to see just your one Greek word, and I saved it for the very, very end. The one that's in your notes this morning is going to go up on the screen, and this particular word is talking about the word serve that Paul just used here, duleu. And in this particular word, it's not going to matter that much to you, but it is a derivative of the word doulos. Now, doulos is always used of a slave, a single individual person. Doulos, come here. Doulos, do this. They would refer to him just as slave, not even giving them the dignity of using their name. Doulos. The way that it's used here as this derivative is talking about the function of a slave, someone who's in bondage and carrying out their bondage. Why does Paul choose to use that word right here? Because he's not describing the service of a hired worker. This is not somebody who signed up for a job to get paid. This is someone who understands their assignment. So it's not like someone showed up in an orchard at 8 o'clock in the morning and said, hey, I'll pick apples for you because somebody advertised and said, we need workers, $8 an hour, come on into the orchard. And you work until it gets to be 85 degrees outside at 2, a, at 2 in the afternoon. And you say, wow, I'm out, man. This is, this is miserable. I'm going looking for a new job. 
This is not talking about a person who's been hired and they're able to refuse an order and they're going to go looking for another employer. This exclusively refers to a bondservant whose sole purpose for existence is to obey the will of the master. So we serve Jesus, believers. We serve him in newness of the Spirit. That's what verse 6 is talking about, producing the fruit of redemption. And it's not optional. You can't just quit and say, I'm looking for another job. I don't want that assignment. To bear fruit is to do his will. I talk to so many 20 and 30-year-olds who say, I don't want to miss the will of God for my life. What is God's will for my life? I got a long life ahead of me. I don't want to miss his will. What is God's will? God's will is that you would produce fruit in keeping with repentance that you would bear fruit. You don't want to miss the big one? That's the big one. What has God wired you for? How has he specifically gifted you? What is he calling you to do? To bear fruit is to do his will, and that's what gives him glory. So ask yourself the question, what am I doing to advance the kingdom? What am I doing to advance the name of Jesus? Big thought coming out of these six verses. God releases us from our bondage so that we will serve. So earlier this week, I was thinking through imagery associated with this, and for whatever reason, this image popped in my mind, and I began thinking of individuals who are part of work release programs, those who are in jail or in prison, and somewhere along the line, they're paroled. Or they're given for good behavior, they're given work release, or maybe they're in a medium security prison and and they're sent out to serve in the community. And I started thinking about those individuals. You know, you typically see them wearing a a jumpsuit or a shirt, maybe a big orange one that says inmate on it and the name of the prison on the front. And I thought, how interesting would that be if um, New Hope believers and volunteers started wearing a shirt that said, hashtag uh, New Hope released to serve, right? Like, we've been held in bondage by one master, and now we've been aligned with another one. And Jesus, the one that we're now joined to, is our master who's saying, I released you from your bondage to serve. So I actually sent an email to the staff yesterday saying, we got to get t-shirts made with this. So, and I'm thinking like blaze orange. So if you start seeing orange shirts around here next week, you'll know why, right? It says release to serve. I'm thinking that'd be kind of cool for volunteers, right? Okay, maybe you don't agree with me, right? But here's a thought. That'll start a conversation, right? Wear one of those to work. People will say, what's up with that? Well, if you've never looked at Romans 7, 6 before, you wouldn't understand the thought. You have been redeemed by the king of creation, bought at a great price with his body, he paid the price. And because you believe, you have been released to serve. How am I doing with that, right? I'm just asking you to ask yourself that. So my July gift to you is we're done, all right? I I know, it's not 12 yet. But don't leave. I, I would love to pray for you before you leave. So can we pray about what we just studied? Let's pray that God would apply this. Father, you have made this truth incredibly poignant this morning, and you call us to a high standard. So we just examine ourselves, and we ask that it would not quickly fade away, but 
that um, this afternoon, this evening, um, tomorrow, throughout the week, we would really ponder ourselves. How are we doing with love and joy and peace and patience? And how are we doing about being zealous for good deeds? God, continue to press upon our heart. Help us to not be stagnant. But to be willing to say, like Paul, we are a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we press on towards the high call of what it means to have life in him. Thank you for the clarity of your word in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.